Hey, Ella. Yes. How do you make a pool table laugh? Ow. Take all his balls. <laughs> all right, everybody. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the South. I'm Justin Case. I'm Ella Blue. And we are joined again by me, the producer, Slick Rick. You're welcome. <laughs> all right, Ella, what are we talking about today? Well, this one is very interesting, and um, it was suggested by somebody I know. So we're going to talk about Corpsewood Manor. Ooh. In Georgia. Sounds like a lovely name. Yeah. And again, I know there was a disclaimer on the beginning of this, but I just want to reiterate that this one's kind of heavy. So. Viewer discretion is most certainly advised. Definitely. Well, I mean, it's corpse wood, so we're <clears throat> obviously talking about rigor mortis. <laughs> right. You would be surprised. Probably not, but go ahead. Let's get into it. Dr. Charles Shutter came from a wealthy family and worked as a professor of pharmacology at Chicago's Loyola University, a good job by his own definition. Described by those who knew him as brilliant, polished, and soft-spoken, but confident. Shutter was born October 6, 1926. He was married twice. He wound up having four sons with his second wife. After his second divorce in 1959, Shutter hired a man named Joseph Odom to help around the house with the boys. Odom stayed after they grew up and moved out, and the two men became lovers. Okay. Yeah. Well, saw that going differently. I told you. Shutter performed government-funded experiments using psychoactive drugs at the university. Um, he resided with Joey in a Chicago mansion and had a house full of Renaissance-era antiques that Shutter referred to as both a mausoleum and a tomb. In 1976, Shutter was done with the academic politics and city life and wanted an escape from taxes, light bills, gas bills, water bills, all those bills. Off the grid. Yeah, and the helpless feeling that resulted from watching his old neighborhood disintegrate into an urban ghetto. He craved the Chicago. ability... Yep. He craved the ability to throw himself into a simpler and yet more hedonistic lifestyle and the privacy to do so. He resigned from his job on his 50th birthday and after receiving a small inheritance that left him with a monthly stipend, he sold off or gave away most of his possessions and purchased 40 acres of land deep in the remote woods of Tryon, Georgia. It's said that he took two human skulls and 1,200 vials of LSD with him. <laughs> now that sounds like a party. <laughs> that, that's the off-the-grid life if I've ever heard All of it. Right. I don't Shit. know about the skulls, but the LSD. He and Odom and their two giant mastiffs, Beelzebub and Arzanath, relocated and basically camped while clearing the land and building their dream home. An old logging road was the only way to reach the property, which they named Dead Horse Road because there was a horse carcass blocking the road when they got there. This sounds like a great place. Yeah. This doesn't sound like the intro to every horror movie, literally <laughs> ever. End of the roads marked with wrong turn. Yeah. yeah. Now, the process took about two years to complete with the men building their home by themselves. Charles even customized the stained glass windows with one having a baphomet to go with the other satanic items that he had in the house. Yes. Charles was an official member of the Satanic Church. He also built... I guess hell, hence the Beelzebub as the name of the dog. Yeah. 
He also built a three-story chicken house on the property. The first floor was for their chickens. It's a lot of cum. The second floor was for canned goods and their extensive porn collection. There it is. I knew it. <laughs> and the third and the third floor was called the pink room, complete with mattresses and BDSM toys. Charles and Joey loved their place. I bet they did. And they loved having people over, even sending letters, personalized letters out as invitations. Hunters would come on the property asking to hunt, and Charles always let them. Several times they would hang out and drink homemade wine with the men. Two men in particular enjoyed coming out to the property often. That was Avery Brock and Tony West. The Tony was born in Avery August. Avery and Tony. Avery and Tony. A little light in the loafers. Well, Tony was born in August of 1952 to a poor family. Before he was even born, his father had been in a train accident, causing him severe neck and back pain. The family basically lived off the father's disability check and whatever he could earn doing odd odd jobs. When Wes was 10, his father died in a horrible car accident, and his death was a major blow both mentally and financially to the family. At 13, West was watching his two-year-old cousin and found a pistol. Playing around with it, he didn't think it was loaded and wound up shooting the baby. He was found guilty but was sentenced to five years in a mental institution instead of prison. Here we go with the geniuses again. Yeah, that took a fucking turn. Yeah. Oh, man. At 18, he was freed, but not having money or any idea how to take care of himself, he soon turned to crime again. And once again, he found himself in jail. I mean, his family, yeah, his family even called him a bad seed. Stop breaking the law, assholes. (laughs) But he found love. And in 1979. On the farm? On the satanic BDSM farm? No. Oh. In 1979, he got married at the age of 27. And soon after, he was having dinner with the family and got into an argument with his brother-in-law, who had just escaped prison. Tony wound up shooting him with a twenty-two. Where do you find these people, Ella? <laughs> Look around. My goodness. I told you. And so, Tony wound up shooting him with a twenty-two pistol four times in the leg, stomach, and two in the back. Southern hospitality, my ass. Well, right? What the fuck? <laughs> so, the brother-in-law survived. I hope so. He was shot in the leg, the stomach, and the back with a twenty-two. Yeah. Not in the head. Yeah. Okay. He mushroomed out on the skin. At 4 a.m. the next morning, Tony, Tony turned himself in. The police found out that he was actually supposed to be serving time in Hamilton County, Tennessee, for an earlier crime, but somehow escaped it. So he served three years in a high-security facility, not serving any time for the shooting of his brother-in-law. Well, the brother-in-law was an escaped convict, too, wasn't he? Yeah. Tony wasn't an escaped convict. He was just a convict. Right. So his wife divorced him while he was in prison. So when he got out, once again, he had nowhere to go and didn't know what to do. But this time, his sister-in-law let him move into a trailer that she owned. The trailer park is where he met Avery. 18-year-old Avery came from a similar background. At a young age, Avery lost his father due to a cerebral hemorrhage. His mother remarried, but he had a terrible relationship with his stepfather. Avery dropped out of school at 17 and took on odd jobs to try to earn enough money to get out and be independent. Shortly before he turned 18, Avery was kicked out of the house. 
And Tony felt bad for him, so he let him move into the trailer. But there was no electricity or water in the trailer. Now but, that's saying something if Tony feels bad for you. Yeah. So he, he didn't have any electricity or water, but at least the boy would have a roof over his head. There was a 13-year age gap between them, but the men became friends and bonded over their drug habits. Oh, I bet they did. They would get high any way they could, which a lot of times would be from huffing paint and glue. The men liked going to Charles's house because of the free drinks and drugs. The first time Charles took them to the chicken house, they noticed a sign-in book. People had signed their names along with experiences and sexual preferences. So when they got up to the third floor, they drank homemade watermelon wine. Yeah. There Gay were, homemade watermelon wine. That was some good wine. Little, little hooch pooch. There were <laughs> large barrels of it. So the men got pretty drunk. It wasn't the only thing that was large barrels of. Charles moved to Avery and unzipped his pants, giving him a blowjob. He noticed Tony watching and asked him if he would like one too, but Tony declined. <laughs> no thanks, I'm good. <laughs> I'm going to go do this LSD that's sitting on your coffee table. Y'all have fun. So the next day, Avery was livid, saying Charles took advantage of him. Tony thought maybe Avery was gay and knew he had been to Corpsewood several times before without him. Avery got so mad at Tony that he threatened to kill him. Then he tried to talk him into helping him. Avery had a plan. He told Tony that Charles was rich and that the house was full of antiques worth a ton, a ton of money. And since they lived off the grid, he probably didn't trust banks, so they, the money that they had had to be hidden in the house. They could kill Charles and Joey, get rid of the bodies, and take over the house themselves. That was his plan. On December 10th, 1982, Tony and Avery headed to Corpsewood. On the way, Tony asked Avery if he had the rifle. Avery said no. I it knew was, I forgot something. Yeah, it was at his mom's, but wouldn't be a problem because he had his knife. <laughs> Damn it, Avery. Tony reminded him of the two bull mastiffs that Charles had, so they turned the car around. On December 12th, the men made their way back to Corpsewood. This time, bringing along two friends, Jody Wells and Teresa Huggins. Second time's a charm. Once again, Charles took everyone to the pink room to drink and do drugs. Avery decided it was time and went to the car to retrieve the gun. When he returned, Charles acted like it was normal. He even pointed his finger, saying, bang, bang. Tony was on his feet by this time with a knife to Charles's throat. Charles asked, what game were they playing? The men took sheets off the bed and cut them into strips to tie Charles up asking who else was there and where the money is. Charles told them there was no money, and Avery was getting fed up at this point and went in the house. When he walked in, he found Joey in the kitchen cleaning up supper dishes. When Joey saw Avery with the gun, he turned to run out the other door. Avery fired and caught Joey with two bullets, one in the head and one in the arm. Oh, and Joey was such a good little housewife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the dogs ran in at this point, and Avery shot at them. He went back to the chicken house at this point and took Charles down to the first floor and threw him in with the chickens. Tony and Avery made Joey and Jody and Teresa come with them into the main house. They started pulling the place apart looking for the money and those expensive antiques. When they made their way into the study, Tony heard a low growl behind him. He turned around to see one of the dogs and pulled the trigger and shot him. He then found the other dog who had, was wounded by Avery earlier and shot him again. Damn it. I know. I had to kill the dogs. I know. Dirtbags. Tony and Avery got tired of looking and finally drug Charles into the house, throwing him into a chair. 
They kept interrogating him and found out that he, in fact, had no money at the house. He had 40000 in the bank left from his mother's inheritance and collected about $200 from it every month. That was it. That's what they lived on. Couldn't have him doing a nicer Satanist. Charles got up and made his way towards Joe, and he was told to sit down, but he didn't listen. He leaned over Joe crying, saying, I asked for this. They shot him twice in the head. And when he went to check, Avery said that he was still breathing, and every time he took a breath, blood would come out of the bullet wounds. He shot him three more times in the head. Well, you gotta make sure. I mean, that's just three more times. And... What was he shooting him with? The twenty-two. I was about to say, probably that Still 22. the twenty-two. Yes. Well, no wonder he got to shoot him five times in the head. The two men loaded up everything they could find and then took the keys to Charles's Jeep. Tony, Jody, and Teresa got in his car while Avery got in the Jeep. As Tony was backing down the driveway, he was going a little too fast and slid into a ditch and hit a tree. Avery had to turn the Jeep around and pull him out, and then they were on their way. Wow. Bunch of Einsteins over here. <laughs> I, I got for that. Tony talked Jody into buying his car. Then Jody and Teresa left. Jody's mom was taking Teresa home when she broke down and told Jody's mom everything. Jody's mom told him she wouldn't say a word, but she knew Teresa would, so she came up with the plan to have Teresa pick up her daughter. And once they got to the house, they kept Teresa locked in a room for four days to keep her away from the police. Jody eventually took Teresa with him to a friend's house where she was able to find a a phone and call her uncle. During this time, Tony and Avery told family and friends they were packing up and heading to Florida, but they were really heading to Mexico. The men stopped in Louisiana at a rest stop to get some sleep. When Tony woke up in the morning, he noticed there was only one other vehicle at the rest stop. He grabbed the 22 from the back seat and walked over and knocked on the window where Kirby Feltz was sleeping. Kirby told him that he could have whatever he wanted. Tony handcuffed him and took him into the woods. When he took one of the cuffs off of Kirby to cuff him to a tree, Kirby was able to punch Tony in the head and Tony was able to fire off three rounds into Kirby's head, killing him. When he got back, he told Avery to drive the Jeep, and he would drive the car. They abandoned the Jeep in the woods a little farther down the road and took off. Three men out with metal detectors found Kirby, but there was no ID, so he was just listed as a John Doe. Three days after the murder, a friend of Charles and Joey's went to Corpsewood to let them know about a mutual friend that had passed away. When he got there, he noticed the Jeep was missing, but thought maybe Charles um, had gone into town to buy supplies since he did that once a month. When he came back the next day and the Jeep was still gone, he had a bad feeling. The men would have let friends know if they were going out of town. So he walked up to the house and he noticed the door open and bullet holes in the wall and the smell. You think? Yeah. He left and called police. They said the smell from the bodies and the food was so bad, investigators had to step outside to take breaks. This is the same day Teresa was able to find a phone, so the cops came to pick her and Jody up and take them in for questioning. Avery and Tony couldn't agree on what to do and began fighting, and once they got to Texas, they went their separate ways. Avery hitchhiked back to Georgia, and he called his mom from a payphone to come and get him. As he was getting ready to leave, as she was getting ready to leave to go pick him up, the police showed up for him. She told him where he was, and they went and picked him up. 
He confessed to everything, even giving them a military ID that belonged to Kirby. Tony headed back a few days later. He ran out of gas in Chattanooga, Tennessee, just at the Georgia line. He started walking and found a patrol car at a bar. He was tired and hungry, so he went in to find the cop and told him to arrest him. <laughs> just, yeah, I'm over it. <clears throat> yeah. I give up. Dude, I'm hungry. Just arrest me. The officer didn't find any warrants for him in Tennessee, but once he got to Georgia, he did. And the police in Georgia were worried about the officer bringing him across state lines, so they made him turn around and go back into Tennessee. They made Tony walk six miles into Georgia so he could say he was coming in his on his own volition. <laughs> That's awesome. Guy's already tired and hungry and gives up. No, no keep walking, pal. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Avery pled guilty and took a plea deal, and he is serving three life sentences. Good. So Tony decided he's gonna he's gonna fight this. He's gonna go to 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 court. So he pled not guilty and went to trial. He thought that the jury in a small town in Georgia would believe him when he said that he was protecting himself against demons since Charles was a Satanist. <laughs> He testified the furniture was glowing in the house. The defense tried to argue that since the police found LSD on the property, the wine was laced. But the bottles and the barrels were tested and none none was found in the, in the wine. Avery's testimony, though, that's what did him in. And he told the jury that this had been planned for a long time. And Tony was found guilty and sentenced to death, but it was overturned because there was an issue with the indictment. When he went back to trial, Tony pled guilty and took a plea deal to serve life in prison. What was the issue with the indictment? Somebody forget to cross the T? Probably. I don't... There was something... I read two different things, but one of them said that um, there weren't enough women on the jury. So? I don't know. It's 1980-something, so I'm not sure. Yeah, long after the suffrage movement, I think we're okay. Yeah. Um, so he took the plea deal, and he's serving life in prison. There I'll was... tell you what. Those two yeah. should find old Toby from episode three, and they could be the Three Stooges. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No kidding. Because they're all idiots. <laughs> Well, there was a memorial at Corpsewood, and Joe's ashes were scattered on the property. They should have scattered them in the chicken coop. Charles's sister came and took his ashes back to Wisconsin with her. But someone burned the house down not long after, and now it's just... I wonder why. <laughs> uh, yeah, now it's, now it's rumored to be haunted. Many have said you can Wait, still... Wait, the dead Satanist house that got burned down is... Rumored to be haunted? Yep. No way. <laughs> no way. Many have said that you can still hear gunshots, dogs barking, and see glowing eyes. Paranormal investigators have claimed to find lots of evidence to back the haunting thing up. Deputies that were on the scene even said that it felt like they were being watched when they were all there. And looters who stole some of the antiques have had a run of bad luck as well. Like, they have actually said, no, you know, I stole this here, take it, because kind of reminds me of Robert the Doll. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I think the thing that gives me chills, though, is that Charles had a, a, a painting of himself hanging up. Uh-huh. That he was gagged 
and had five bullet holes in his head. Yeah, is that not crazy? It's like yeah. he, he, it's he, a premonition. He got his wish. And the yeah. whole, I asked for this. Yep. I mean, was he saying because he led a, the lifestyle of, of being a gay man and a, a Satanist? I'm, I'm going to guess no. If he had a painting of that up, I, I'm going to say he was being a little more literal. It's crazy. But that is the story of Corpsewood. And I think that is a, I think, talking about wanting to go to these places, I think that is some place that I would really like to go and see. I've seen the pictures of the remains no, of the Ella, house. No, Ella, you can't go in the chicken coop. I don't want to go in the chicken coop. I just want to see. Twisted. I want, to see the, I want to see the remains of the house because it was it was rumored to have looked like a castle and from what I could see the, the pictures it really did it had a turret and I mean it was just it was pretty from the outside I never saw pictures of the inside of it though so there, well, you, there go. you go folks there's the story of corpsewood and, and all the twisted living and dead issues that might be there Thanks for stopping by and hanging out with us today, guys. And we'll see you again next time. Y'all come back now.